And welcome to Taxing Matters, your one-stop audio shop for all things tax, brought to you by RPC. My name is Alice Kim, and I will be your guide as we explore the sometimes hostile and ever-changing landscape that is the world of tax law and tax disputes. Taxing Matters brings you a fortnightly roadmap to guide you and your business through this labyrinth. In case any of you missed any crucial information or just want some bedtime reading, there is a full transcript of this and indeed every episode of Taxing Matters on our website at www.rpc.co.uk forward slash taxing matters. Today we are joined by Jonathan Fisher QC of Brightline Law to discuss challenging search warrants in general and how this has played out in practice in the recent search warrant challenge in the case of Ashbolt and Arundel versus HMRC. Jonathan, the founder of all barrister crack team Brightline Law and a member of Redline Chambers, also a recipient of an honorary doctorate of law for his contribution to the law of financial crime and financial regulation. He's also a visiting professor at LSE where he teaches financial crime. Described as calm, sure and deadly, Jonathan is another literally wrote the book style of legal titan, authoring chapters and articles on almost every topic in financial crime and co-authoring the text on fraud and the Criminal Finances Act 2017. Jonathan, welcome to Taxing Matters. Thank you very much. So thinking about search warrants generally, what exactly are they and when do HMRC in particular seek the issue of them? Search warrants are authority for the revenue as an investigating body to enter into your premises, home and and or office, to search for material that uh, they think might be relevant to an investigation that they are carrying out. They have to get judicial authority to have that order, but once they've got it, they can enter premises and search and remove relevant material. So what is the process to get a search warrant? Well, like all good things in law, it depends. The common denominator is that you've got to get judicial approval. It's a judicial order. Now, if the revenue wants to obtain a search warrant in relation to somebody who is suspected of committing tax fraud, then typically they'll go to the magistrate's court and they'll apply in this Section 8 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act of 1984 And they will seek a warrant and they'll seek to persuade a magistrate, maybe a district judge or maybe a lay magistrate, that uh, there are proper grounds for issuing the warrant. And they will get it in that way. It's entirely ex parte, which means just the revenue officers and sometimes the CPS, but no representative from the other side. The second way in which warrants are granted will be where The target is different, where, for example, the revenue officers want to get information from professional persons or somebody who's holding information which is subject to a duty of confidence. Now, typically in a tax case, that would be your accountant, it might be your bank, it might be your lawyer, though it's rare that the revenue will go into a lawyer's office because they do worry about the concerns of legal professional privilege. But in that type of situation, the revenue will go to a Crown Court judge. They make an application under Schedule 1 of the Police and Criminal Evidence Act, and it has to go before a judge, and the judge will decide whether the criteria are made out. And the reason that it goes before a judge rather than a magistrate in the Crown Court 
is that the information is typically held subject to this obligation of confidence. And if you're going to breach the confidence, I think the thinking is that that sort of order is that much more serious and therefore should be made by a fully qualified lawyer rather than a lay magistrate. So what are the tests involved in either asking a magistrate or a district judge to issue a warrant? Yes, broadly, actually, the tests are the same, whether you go to the magistrate's court or the Crown Court, really. I mean, if we just look at it in the round, the revenue have got to have reasonable grounds for believing a serious tax fraud has been committed, and that's the main one. But there are other things as well. The revenue would have to satisfy the court that there was no other means of obtaining the property. And uh, that is a more difficult area for them because they really need to show some form of non-cooperation or some sort of concern that the evidence might not be available to them if they don't go and secure it by entering somebody's premises. And they also have to show that it's proportionate in terms of the investigation to issue a warrant. I mean, a warrant is a serious invasion of a person's privacy. And I mean, the whole point of these things is that the revenue officers don't turn up by appointment at four o'clock in the afternoon. And in fact, they'll be knocking at your door at half past five or six o'clock in the morning, and they'll be bursting through. And so it's a, a serious invasion of a person's privacy. So the courts will require it to be proportionate. Then there's also the criteria that it's got to be in the public interest. But of course, uh, you're never going to get a situation really where you're going to be able to say that it's not in the public interest. So where there are discussions about the validity of warrants and whether they should be granted, they tend to focus on this issue of, is there evidence, reasonable grounds for believing the commission of a tax fraud and or is there evidence for believing that documents can't be obtained in any other way or may be destroyed. So if HMRC have been successful in getting a search warrant, what does it mean that they can look for? Well, they can look for whatever material falls within the description of the warrant, which will be pretty wide, and typically it will refer to uh, somebody's business affairs or tax affairs between a particular period of time. may name or state certain companies, but it doesn't have to. And the revenue officers will be looking really for commercial records. They may be personal, or they may be business, or they may be both. And what about the powers they have to do that? What powers does a search warrant grant the officers? Well, it grants the officers powers to enter so they can break the door down and get in. Grants them powers to search the premises for relevant documents. Quite sometimes, a number of officers will often attend, and they will search the premises. I mean, in the olden days, they'd be looking at reams of paper. Of course, today, what they're looking for are the computer gadgets that you've got, and be looking at your hard drives. And they can look at those, and they can seize them, in fact, and walk away with them. And so their powers are quite extensive. I mean, there's no question about it. It's a serious intrusion. What about what they can't do? Are there any limits on what their powers are? Well, they're limited to the terms of the warrant. So they're limited to the times that the warrant specified for the execution of the warrant. They're limited to the number of officers that are stated on the warrant. They're limited to the type of documents or the areas of business or domestic activity that they're interested in. So they're limited to all of that. I don't really think one comes across too often the revenue wandering around 
taking things that they shouldn't. I mean, they're not going to take your music collection you know, or, or something of that sort. But I think the problems occur, actually, where they pick up material, for example, material on hard drives, that they really shouldn't have done or shouldn't be there. But, of course, they don't always know to be copying access the material. So a typical example will be legally, professionally privileged material that they may actually take hold of but not appreciating at the time that it's privileged. I mean, one of the things that somebody who's subject to a warrant may well want to say at the time, they've got the presence of mind, is, well, you know, that legally privileged stuff there, you mustn't take that. The other area, of course, is if you've got something that's completely unrelated to the fraud that they're investigating, and how do you handle that? So that's quite interesting. I mean, I've come across these cases in the past where... For example, the revenue might be investigating a corporation tax fraud. And in fact, what happens is that they also find evidence on the computer of a VAT fraud. And the question is, can they hold on to it? And broadly, the rule is, well, they can. And then you get the really awkward ones that don't happen very often, but I'm, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention it. You can have situations where the revenue will find material of a very embarrassing nature, of a sexual nature, which sometimes is actually material that's crossed the line between what's legal and what is illegal to have. Again, I've been around long enough to remember the days when the revenue officers on occasions would seed magazines. <laughs> They'd literally get printed material. And of course, now it's all electronic. So that material is outside of the warrant. And then the question arises, very difficult questions arise there as to what you do with it. With the VAT fraud, that's quite easy. If they've discovered stuff that crosses the line into the criminal area, again, it's quite easy, particularly where children are involved. It's more difficult where they've got other material that actually is just of a private nature, but is not, not only lawful to have or to do. And I think there, there are limits. I think they have to draw the line. But an interesting area. I mean, most of the challenges really focus on whether the criteria for the warrants are made out rather than the way the actual warrant has been executed. Speaking of those challenges, if you are looking to challenge a search warrant, how do you go about doing that? Well, I guess your first protocol probably is your phone solicitors. I mean, you can challenge the warrant, but you can actually, in certain circumstances, and the courts have pretty much shut this down now, that you used to be able to get onto your lawyer and go straight to the high court for an injunction and stop the search in its track. I, I remember doing that on a few occasions. It can be done. But you've got to have some pretty good reason. You've got to look at the warrants and be able to say immediately they're outside of it. Maybe they've got the wrong address, which they do. They sometimes make mistakes. I mean, you need to check the warrants very, very carefully because, yeah, the officers and the courts do make mistakes on them. And if, of course, they've got the wrong address or it's not properly stated or they're outside the times allotted, or if you think that they are taking material that goes way beyond what the warrant seems to authorise, you can, as a matter of law, if you can get your act together, rush down to the high court. But in reality, what tends to happen is that um, the most advice will be, because it all happens so quickly, and as I say, it all happens at six o'clock in the morning, what will happen is that after the search has been executed, client will go off to a firm of solicitors and say, can we have a look at this? Should we be challenging the, the warrants? 
And the way you challenge it is by way of an application to the high courts called judicial review, where you'd want a high courts judge, actually two judges, to sit and review what um, either the magistrates or the Crown Court judge ordered. Um, that's how it would happen. And what are the advantages of going and getting a judicial review of a search warrant? Yeah, well, there are advantages. I think we have to be careful in the way that we answer that question. I think all lawyers have to be careful the way they answer it. I mean, it's certainly difficult to quash search warrants. And I'm not going to, you know, pretend to you that it's otherwise. You're pretty uphill. I don't want to say anything unkind or unfair about our judges. I mean, obviously, the judges, of course, they want to make sure that the revenue always acts properly. But I think they're also very concerned that those who are suspected of tax fraud are properly investigated and not impeded. And so it's a bit of an uphill struggle. But there can be advantages. I mean, if you have a situation where you think you've got a good case for quashing the warrant and you can get the warrant quashed, it's a nuisance for the revenue. There's no question about that because, you know, it takes their mind off the ball and they have to think about other things. But very often it's a pyrrhic victory. I mean, that's where the law has changed. In the, in the olden days, you could get the warrant quashed and the moment you got it quashed, the revenue would have to return all the documents to you. But today, there's a process whereby actually the high court itself may refuse to do that. Or alternatively, there's another route going to the Crown Court, which can be done on that day, where they get an order, another order, just to hold on to retain the material. So you end up with a pyrrhic victory. I think there are advantages. and I think this is something that's got to be considered very, very carefully. I think there are strategic advantages, tactical advantages, that can be factored into the equation. And this is the sort of material, sort of information, that I think makes revenue officers very cross. But I think I'm perfectly entitled in terms of strategic overview to identify it. One of the advantages of going for judicial review is that it does force the uh, revenue's hands to disclose at an earlier stage than they would otherwise information about their case. You'd ask for the document that was put before the judge. That's the first thing, which would tell you how the revenue are putting their case, how they got the warrant. That could be quite helpful because up until that point, you haven't a clue what they're investigating, or you may not have a clue. That can be very helpful. And, of course, if the old judicial review gets going, the revenue would have to make some witness statements to support that. So you have the advantage of having not just the material put in front of the judge, but also some witness statements that are made. That can be helpful because you can now identify where the revenue are going. You can focus your own preparations for defence, particularly if a criminal investigation turns into a criminal prosecution, you can actually concentrate on what issues are troubling the revenue. And it's not too late to put in a submission for the revenue officers, seeking to dissuade them from continuing to investigate or continuing to prosecute. You're stabbing in the dark if you haven't got this information. So judicial review is a very good way of getting it. And the other thing to bear in mind, and a number of strategic issues to bear in mind, but another aspect of this you might want to think about is that if you do end up on the end of a prosecution, very often the case does change as the revenue investigator, because, of course, the material that you've got, the material that you know, predates the search warrants. So the case may change, and it's actually quite powerful when you're defending as a defence advocate to say to a jury, 
This is how the case started off. This is what they thought. This is where we are now. And sometimes they're completely different cases. And you can actually use that to undermine the revenue investigation, the revenue case. If you've got material that emerges, it might enable you to make a submission of, you know, well, the revenue tried one road, they realized it was blocked, so they went down another. And that sort of argument, particularly if you were able to put it to the revenue officers in due course, can sometimes be awkward for them. It's left hand and right hand, I'm afraid, with the revenue department, the civil teams, the criminal teams. But I remember doing a case where material was disclosed in defense of a judicial review attack but was never disclosed as unused material in the criminal case. So, of course, we kept saying to the revenue, have you disclosed everything in the criminal case? Oh, yes, of course we have, everything. And we're sitting there thinking, we know you haven't, because in the judicial review, we have your witness statements and we have your documents and we know that you have not. At the end of the day, if you are on the end of a search warrant, you're at the beginning of a battle, and it's a battle where the revenue may very well end up prosecuting you. So there are some strategic concerns. The thing is, you may succeed and overturn the warrants, but if you do, as I say, you probably will still find that you don't get the documents back. You may lose, of course, and that you know will bring us on to, to Ashbolt and the Arundel case, which was one of the more recent ones I've been involved with, where we did get quite a lot of information, but a lot of that's public in the sense it's in the judgments, but we lost the case. That's also public. And, you know, it's an expensive little exercise because the other side's costs, so your costs have to be paid and the other side's costs have to be paid. So, you know, you've got to weigh all this in the balance. It's not straightforward thinking. I'm always very careful to warn taxpayers who have, have been raided about the potential downside. So although I've outlined the uptick side, which may or may not develop and be helpful, you've always got to be aware of the downside as well. So turning out to the Ashbolt and Rundle case, how did that happen? What was the background to the search? Nothing particularly stunning, to be perfectly honest. The revenue had been in correspondence with these two taxpayers. They had suspected that their, their tax affairs were irregular, and that's moved on into a subsequent suspicion that there may, may be fraudulent activity at play. And they, being the revenue, had reached the point where they felt that they couldn't be sure of getting the additional material they wanted without the coercive measures. So they went into the premises on the back of search warrants. And yeah, and that's why they were doing it. I think from the revenue perspective, again, it comes through the judgment. You get the feeling they sort of ran out of patience. And from the taxpayers' perspective, taxpayers were saying, we just don't understand what you're talking about. We've been, you know, corresponding with you. Why have you done this? And that's how the arguments got framed. So after the search warrant was executed, what was the dispute? Well, a number of areas. Again, the, the judgment's pretty clear on it, if you have a look at it. I mean, the first thing we took as an argument is to say that actually this was avoidance, not evasion. And therefore, there was no basis at all. Now, the cause was at pains to say that all that the revenue has to show is reasonable grounds for believing 
that there is a tax fraud, because it is evasion, not, not avoidance. In a sense, it doesn't help, though. It's not going to shut down other cases coming forward, because it begs the question, does your belief, what you're looking at, reasonable grounds of suspicion or belief, however you want to frame it, do they amount to, do they cross the line from avoidance into evasion? And they do have to have some evidence of that. Now, in the Aaron Sorry Nashville case, it wasn't straightforward. If you read the judgment, the court was saying that it felt there was an inference of dishonesty. And we were saying there was no inference of dishonesty that you could draw. So, I mean, it was a matter for the court to come to that view. Also, we were quite strong on saying this was disproportionate. We, on behalf of the taxpayers, have been corresponding with the revenue. There was no need for you to do this. There was no risk. You didn't have any evidence that we were going to destroy material and, you know, those sort of arguments. But it was an interesting case. The taxpayers came close, but the court knocked it down. What was your feeling about why the court did not reach the line on this matter? What I would say is that it goes back very much to where I started on this. I think the courts are concerned to make sure that the revenue is not impeded. You know, everything I've said earlier on about the strategic advantages, I mean, the judges have been there before, so they hardly need to be told about what taxpayers and their advocates are doing. If you look at the backgrounds, the practitioner backgrounds of the two judges, who who I must tell you I, I know perfectly well and have enormous respect for, they both had extensive practices in the tax area. I think all judges are very wary in this sort of activity to make sure that the authorities, not just the revenue, it would be true of the police and the serious fraud office, are not impeded by claims that taxpayers or any other suspect is throwing in their way. Satellite litigation's always been something of a distraction for an investigating authority. I think I think everybody knows that. So I, I think that's probably what's going on. But I was very careful not to diss the judiciary. I, I remember doing one case where it was a judicial review and a tax matter and we got listed in front of a judge, and he'd never once allowed a judicial review brought against the revenue. And I thought, oh dear, we've not pulled the right judge for this one. And blow me down, we won. So, you know, I mean, all fairness to the judges, I think they do look at things with considerable care. The judgment's going to go into legal history for one particular reason, actually. It's paragraph 72 of the judgment. I mean, one of the things that we did manage to show, which is why I say we came close I mean, we did show that the Crown Court judge and the revenue in front of the Crown Court judge really had not crossed T's and dotted I's, and they should have done. And that, of course, if you don't do that, you are going to leave a little gap for the taxpayer to try and go through and to widen. So the court was at pains to say they really wanted to make sure that everybody understood the message, that it was incumbent on the revenue to explain to judges, when they're asked to issue search warrants, what exactly the context of the legislation is, because tax, you know, matters are complicated matters. And again, this is said in the context of avoidance and evasion, and they should be taken to the relevant case law. And the point was, you see, the judge wasn't, which is how we were able to make out an argument that he'd misdirected himself and got evasion and avoidance around the wrong way. So they were, you know, they were very careful to say that it must be standard practice 
for the revenue to help judges in these type of cases. So if anybody is listening to this from the revenue, do have a read of paragraph 72. So what would be your top tips for anyone who's thinking about applying for a judicial review? What are the first steps? I mean, the first step is honestly to go and see somebody who really does know the area like the back of their hand. I mean, your firm's a pretty, I would say that, wouldn't I? Your firm's a pretty good side. I've known your partner for nigh on 20 years. I mean, you want a firm that knows revenue work inside out, but not just revenue work. You want exposure to the criminal type of work. And as you haven't asked me to, to say all this, it's a question. The blue. But I think it's true. There are a small number of firms. There are three of them. I won't mention the other two. <laughs> RPC is one of them, one of the three, who really do know what they're doing in this area. So that, that I think, is the first thing. But I genuinely think you need to be careful. It's got to be looked at because there are advantages. There are disadvantages. I mean, one of the disadvantages I haven't mentioned, which also ought to be stated, is that when you do go for judicial review, although it's not for the applicant to say very much, and you can challenge the judicial review in the way you want, you still might find yourself put in a situation where you have to give some explanation of what's happened. And you may not want to do that. A lot of criminal lawyers will say, don't say anything at the early stage. And it's a bit of a dilemma. And that arose, I must tell you, in um, Arundel Nashbolt. Because again, if you read the judgment, you'll see that the moment you go onto the footing of saying this is avoidance, not evasion. It's sort of incumbent on you to explain why it's avoidance, not evasion. And the moment you do that, you're starting giving away your substantive defence. So you really do need to be with the experts. So go to firm solicitors and get the firm solicitors to instruct a barrister who actually does know what they're talking about and has experience in these cases, because it is a very specialised area of revenue work and criminal work. There aren't that many people around have this sort of exposure to both tax work and criminal work. That's all that we've got time for in this week's episode. Tune in next time for all you need to know about HMRC inquiries with John Cassidy, a tax resolutions partner at Crow UK. Thank you very much to Jonathan Fisher QC for taking us through search warrants and all of the considerations that have to be borne in mind when you're contemplating judicially reviewing a search warrant. You can contact Jonathan through his email jf at brightlinelaw.co.uk. If you have any questions for me or for Jonathan or any topics you'd like us to cover in a future episode, please do email us on taxingmatters at rpc.co.uk. We'd love to hear from you. As ever, a big thank you goes to Josh McDonald, who does all of the work pulling each episode together. Our music is from musical genius Andrew Waterson, who also produces each episode. And of course, a big thank you to all of our listeners for joining us. If you like Taxing Matters, why not try RPC's other podcast offering, Insurance Covered, which looks at the inner workings of the insurance industry, hosted by the brilliant Peter Mansfield, and available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, and our website. If you like this episode, please do take a moment to rate, review, and subscribe. And remember to tell a colleague about us. Thank you all for listening and talk to you again in two weeks. Bye.